I think that all examples in epidemiology should be required to use Muggsy Bogues, or I would have accepted Spud Web as another <laughs> option there. Serious Epidemiology, a new podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Haley Bannock from the University at Buffalo, and I am pleased to be co-hosting this podcast with Dr. Matt Fox from Boston. Hi, Matt. How are you? So glad to be here. Good. Glad to be chatting with you again. Today, we are very excited to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Rose Mayetta to the podcast. Elizabeth Rose is an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Dr. Mayetta's research focuses on how to prevent or delay cognitive aging, Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, stroke, and other health outcomes in older adults. She is especially interested in social inequalities and healthy aging. To address these questions rigorously, Dr. Mayetta's work emphasizes methods to strengthen causal inference in observational research, especially tools to quantify and remediate selection bias arising from selective sampling, attrition, or survival. Welcome, Elizabeth Rose. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As listeners of the podcast likely know by now, colitis stratification bias is, without a doubt, my favorite bias. She loves it. Uh, yes, I do. I'm, I'm especially uh, excited to welcome you so we can talk more about this topic today. So as you know from listening to our prior episodes, we like to ask our guests a few questions just to get things rolling and so people can get to know you a little bit better. So the first question I will start off with today is tell us one place on your travel bucket list if, if COVID weren't a thing right now and you, and you could travel somewhere super cool. Yeah, so I think the, the next place on my travel bucket list is the Grand Canyon rim to rim hike. Ooh. Okay, so explain this. You go down into the canyon and hike around? Yeah, you go d down into the canyon and back out the other side. So I haven't done it yet, so I can't give you a lot of details, but over the past few years, I've had different hiking goals. And so this is my next goal. Last year, I hiked Mount Whitney with, with my siblings. And that took two tries. It was a goal two years in a row, so we made it our second second attempt, and so now I've moved on to fixating on our next hiking goal. So you, you figured out how to go all the way up and back down, so now you got to go down and back up? Yes, yes. Although it's, I have to say that, that thinking about the idea of having to do the elevation climb on the second half of the hike is not as exciting, but I think we, I think we could do it. Let me ask you a follow-up question. As a hiker, I'm not a, a very avid hiker, but you are. As a hiker, is it harder to go up or down? Ooh. Ooh. I guess they're hard in different ways. Mentally, you always expect going up to be harder, and then going down can be quite tough on the quads. But usually the way down in all my previous hikes is, is on the way back out. So you always know that each step, you're getting one step closer to going home. And often like a really good hot meal after eating not exciting food on the hike. So yeah, so this will be different in that we're going down on the way in and up on the way out. That's such a classic epidemiologist answer. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what your preferences are. Do you like up or down? Um, yeah, so you're clearly an epidemiologist through and through. Okay, the next question. Outside of studying selection bias and collider stratification bias, what are what's your favorite hobby? Well, I think, you know, for my, my travel bucket list, I like hiking. But in addition to hiking, I really like running. So I like moving 
moving my body, I guess. I spend a lot of time hunched over on my computer, so my free time, I like moving, preferably in, in beautiful places. <laughs> Do you have a preferred distance that you like to run? I think it, it kind of depends. <laughs> oh no, there it is again. <laughs> I mean, I think, you, you mean my favorite distance to race or my favorite distance to, to just run? To race. I think a 10K is a nice distance to race. Yeah, not, not too long, not too short. I'm not gonna ask you how fast you are. All I wanna know is, are you faster than me? So I, I've run about a 15 minute mile. Okay. Can you beat that? I, I can, I don't wanna brag, uh, but. <laughs> I'm impressed, I'm impressed. <laughs> so you race competitively, like you run recreationally just to you know get away from your computer, but you also enjoy racing? I enjoy racing. I haven't been racing competitively lately, but I've raced competitively in the past and hopefully again in the future too. All right. So now that we know a little bit about you, let's turn to what I would consider to be one of my most favorite epitopics. So we expect that most of our listeners already know about colitis stratification bias, but for those who don't, can you give us sort of a, a brief summary of what it is? Yeah, and um, so I define collider stratification bias as bias and estimation of the causal effect of an exposure on an outcome arising from conditioning on a common effect of the exposure or a cause of the exposure and the outcome or the cause of an outcome. So this common effect of the exposure and the outcome is the collider. Right. And so in DAG words, it's called a collider because there's two arrowheads that go into that variable or that node colliding in that node. That's right? Yes. Are you being intentional there in specifically saying that you only see collider stratification bias as occurring when you have a variable that's a consequence of both the exposure and the outcome? Or are you just giving one example? I'm being intentional there. So I guess it could be, the collider could be a direct consequence. So there's a direct arrow from the exposure to the collider and a direct arrow from the outcome to the collider. Or you could have shared common causes of the exposure and the collider and of the outcome and the collider. So the last one you described would be the M-bias type structure? Yeah, the M-bias structure. Okay, so you, you would include that, as would I. Mm -hmm. Just want to make sure. And so in most intro epi courses, students are taught about three sort of categories of bias. They talk about confounding, they talk about information bias, and, and then they talk about selection bias. So where does collider stratification fit in? Does, is it different than what people would call selection bias? I am really glad you asked this question. So I think of collider stratification bias as a subtype of selection bias. So within analytic epidemiology, I define selection bias as a difference in the true causal effect in a target population and the estimated causal effect in a sample that's either induced by collider stratification bias or effect heterogeneity in the sample versus target population. So I think of collider stratification bias as one of the main subtypes of selection bias. But I'm glad you asked this because if you had asked me this maybe three years ago, I would have said that they were equivalent. So I think it's definitely a topic that's worth discussing. Okay, so so would I. In fact, I am starting to see that they are not identical, but I'm not totally there yet. So I'm excited to hear you explain exactly how they differ and convert me. Yeah, ho hopefully I can convert you because this is something that I'm, I'm still kind of learning how to clearly discuss. So hopefully I will also learn how to more clearly express this. So push back if, you're, if I don't convince you, please. Will do.
So when I say affect heterogeneity in the sample versus target population, I think that the difference between these two is that collider stratification bias is a threat to internal validity. So the association between the exposure and the outcome induced by collider stratification bias doesn't reflect the causal effect in the study sample itself. Whereas affect heterogeneity in the sample versus target population, in that case, you may have a valid effect estimate in your study sample, but it doesn't transport or generalize to the target population because there's a difference in the distribution of effect modifiers in the study sample versus the target population. So in, in this situation, it's more selection bias in the external validity sense than internal validity sense. So I think that's one reason why they're, they're a little bit difficult to compare conceptually. And so I think for some of our listeners, certainly for me, I was not ever taught to think about external validity. I don't want to say not at all. We were taught to think about external validity and generalizability, but it wasn't the main focus. It was sort of an afterthought. And certainly when I learned DAGs, it was never, I mean, we never thought about external validity using DAGs. Is that becoming more of a standard way of thinking in epidemiology to focus on both internal and external validity, but also a standard way of teaching DAGs? I guess it's not standard way of teaching DAG, but it's more being used to teach as part of DAGs? I think so, because I think there's been a couple of recent papers that have helped at least me, and I think other people think about selection bias as broader than just collider stratification bias. I guess, first of all, I think Miguel Hernan's 2004 epidemiology paper, A Structural Approach to Collider Bias, is really enlightening for a lot of people. I mean, it blew my mind the first time I read it and really got, every, I think, a lot of people to think collider stratification bias equals selection bias. But in that paper, they, they were specifically thinking about selection bias under the, the sharp null, so no effect of the exposure on the outcome. And then there was a paper, I think the first paper that got me questioning whether there were other forms of selection bias, aside from collider stratification bias, was a 2016 paper by Chanel Howe in epidemiology about selection bias due to loss to follow-up. And in that paper, uh, Chanel Howe and colleagues had a DAG that was not a collider bias DAG that they were insisting was a form of represented selection bias. And I remember some colleagues and I were reading it and were so, so confused, spent time struggling with it. And so I think one of the reasons why the DAGs for selection bias in the sense where you have effect heterogeneity in the sample versus target population is difficult is because DAGs are non-parametric and don't express effect heterogeneity well, or don't express effect heterogeneity. And so it's not as clear with the DAG what's happening, you know, that something bad is happening. And so I think it can be helpful once you've explained the concept in words to then say, oh, this DAG represents the words, whereas a collider bias DAG once you learn DAGs, it like bright lights flashing saying, mm. hey, watch out. <laughs> and then after Chanel Howe's paper in 2016, I think Miguel Hernan had a 2017 commentary, I think with an AJE that was that really cool issue that was about kind of famous AJE papers that were brought back and republished and then um, accompanied by commentaries. And in that paper, Miguel Hernan talks about a Greenland 1977 paper on selection bias that is this form of selection bias. It's not collider bias, it's the effect heterogeneity form. So reading Miguel's commentary after rereading Sanders' paper and having read Chanel Howe's paper was really helpful because I think anytime I'm exposed to something new and difficult, it's, it's nice to hear it multiple times from multiple voices because everyone has a slightly different way of explaining it and it can just be, be nice to hear it from a couple of different sources to kind of let it sink in. Yeah, that's true. And I think that when I was doing my dissertation on selection bias subtype, 
colitis stratification bias. Um, I struggled with what I would call a sort of old school definition of selection bias. And I, I very clearly remember, I think it's a paper by Kleinbaum, where they have this figure, it's a two by two table, and they have an alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. And then they represent sampling from that superpopulation or target population, whatever they call it. And then you have, I don't know what the, the new letters are, but there's something, let's call it A, B, C, and D in your, your sample population. And this kind of idea of selection bias compared to how I was raised or taught with the structural approach to selection bias paper in terms of DAGs. And those are hard things to reconcile and to understand. Okay, I understand this way very clearly. I understand that way very clearly. But how these two relate, it's very, very difficult to understand that. So thank you for clarifying that for us. So why do you think people love colitis stratification bias so much? We've had three guests that have talked about it and have said it's their coolest bias. So, um, I mean, I think you didn't ask me what my favorite bias was because I think the reason why you invited me on this podcast is because you know that collider stratification bias is, is my favorite bias. Although now I guess maybe it's evolved to being selection bias more broadly is my favorite bias. But collider bias is how I became interested in selection bias. And I think it's because, as I think Ellie Murray said on, on an earlier episode, collider stratification bias is maybe the most mind-bending bias. Like it's the bias that, like the first time I heard about it, my mind was was blown away by it. And I became almost obsessed with the idea that collider stratification bias was ruining all of dementia research. So d dementia is my main, my main outcome. And I thought, well, no wonder researchers are so stymied with trying to identify determinants of cognitive decline in dementia. It's because collider bias is ruining everything. It must be pervasive in the field and totally ruining all of our studies. And in, in the context of aging research, I was first interested in collider stratification bias arising from sele selective survival to old age. So because we think that most of the exposures that we're interested in as potential determinants of dementia also influence survival to old age and incipient dementia itself influences survival plausibly. And also we can imagine that, that many determinants of dementia probably also influence survival to old age. So once I was exposed to this concept, I became really obsessed with the fact that collider stratification bias was ruining my entire substantive field and uh, became very fixated on it. So, so that's how I became interested in it. And I think it's because in terms of one of the reasons I became the most fixated on it, it was just was something that I wouldn't have figured out on my own. You know, like it wasn't, it was something I definitely had to be taught. Uh, confounding is something where I think intuitively people understand the concept of confounding. And then in classes, you learn how to formalize it and can more systematically evaluate confounding, for example. I think intuitively people understand that information bias is a problem. And then we were taught in epidemiology courses how to formalize these forms of bias and, and really consider them carefully for a given research questions. But collider stratification bias, someone had to tell me this. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it was so appealing to me and maybe why it's it's so popular. But I'm, I'm interested in, in why Haley loves it. Before you do, can I actually just go back just for one second to something you just said, which is that in dementia research, you, you have these very plausible situations where collider stratification bias could be occurring. In that case, would that be because you're enrolling cohorts of patients in older age? In other words, if we were interested in answering the kinds of questions about exposures that would be related to Alzheimer's, and we enrolled people at birth and just followed them over the course of their lifetime, then we wouldn't have this problem. Am I thinking of that right? 
Yeah, so most of the time we're lucky if we can even enroll people in midlife. But often, yeah, we're not even enrolling people to their old age. So we're conditioning our cohorts on survival to old age. But even if we were lucky enough to have a birth cohort and we know who dies in the study, we still have to grapple with the potential for collider stratification bias to, to potentially bias our study results that, and thinking about how we might want to, I guess, quantify the potential magnitude of bias from it. Like, is it actually going to cause us to draw the wrong conclusions? Or And if, if we do think that it's it's a really significant threat to causal inference, what, what analytic tools should we implement to ameliorate the bias? All right, Haley. So why do you think collider stratification bias is so mind-blowing to people? So I share many of Elizabeth Rose's perspectives. I mean, we both did our dissertations on on related topics around a a similar time period. So I share many of those. I can never get over how much of an impact it can have on someone's study results. I know there are a lot of people out there, maybe we'll we'll get to it later, who say it can't have that big of an impact or, you know, it's it's, you're over-exaggerating. I can see Matt raising his hand right now because he, I guess, is a non-believer. But the the reason I got interested in this is I was in a doctoral seminar and there was this paper in JAMA and it showed if you had five cardiovascular risk factors, so you had hypertension, you had high cholesterol, you were 30% less likely to die after your first MI within 30 days. So if you had zero risk factors, you were better off, you were protected. And this is actually due to collider stratification bias because you're conditioning on surviving to the hospital. And so that just completely messes up the estimate post hospitalization. But that is published in one of the, what I would consider leading or or most popular medical journals out there that having more CVD risk factors is a good thing. How could that possibly be something that people believe given what we know about CVD risk factors? So I think I enjoy studying it because it always surprises me what you can find from it. And so I really like that. The other reason I enjoy it is that there's no simple way for the most part to correct for it. You know, with with confounding, we have a huge number of methodological options in our toolbox. With measurement error, you know, we often have different techniques where we can validate things we're using. With collider stratification bias, I find people ignore it and say something like, we don't think it's that big of an issue or, you know, something along those lines. And so often when I participate in papers, especially with non-epidemiologists, the number of times I see them adjusting for a variable that is so clearly affected by your exposure and so clearly sharing common causes with your outcome, it just boggles my mind that this is not something that people consider more. You know, nobody would publish a or most people wouldn't publish a paper without adjusting for confounders, right? Because your reviewers would probably say, this is probably confounded. You have, you know, you didn't adjust for age, you didn't adjust for smoking. But very few reviewers will say, did you consider the fact that obesity directly affects your blood pressure? So maybe you shouldn't be adjusting for blood pressure in this analysis. It's it's not as common. And so speaking of soapboxes, I'm, I'm sort of on a soapbox about people need to recognize this as important. And that's why it's among my favorites. I just want to say I did raise my hand there, not to say that I'm a non-believer, I do believe, but I do think there are lots of cases where I think collider stratification bias is not as well known as many of the, I mean, I think people who are coming up through their training now definitely know about it, but I'm just going to give an aside here, but we keep referring to growing up in epidemiologic traditions or, or being raised in certain traditions as if we have like epidemiologic parents. 
uh, and our epidemiologic parenting wasn't very good or bad. But anyway, I came up just on the at the beginnings of, of I think people really paying attention to this. And for those people who I think do know about it, I do think there's a tendency to see it everywhere yes. and not always consider the magnitude of the impact. That was all I was going to add. I mean, that's fair. I, Jay Kaufman, who was my dissertation advisor, he, at the beginning of me starting to work on collider stratification bias, apologized to me for ruining all research and all papers I would read forevermore. Because once you see collider bias, you almost always see it. And you begin to look for it in ways that other people would never do. So I agree with what your point is about people who care about it really look for it a lot of the time. We need to make collider stratification bias classes so you can just immediately see it. Yes. I think one of the reasons why I became so obsessed with it is I had taken a couple of years of epidemiology classes before it was first explained to me. And so when somebody first explained it to me, I was sort of angry. I was like, <laughs> why, why hasn't anyone told me about this before? And so I think that that, that may be added to my fixation on it. And I, I would agree that even though it's my, my favorite bias and I'm still obsessed with it, like I do agree that just because it's plausible that there is a causal structure that could give rise to collider stratification bias, it doesn't always mean that the magnitude of bias is large. Um, it doesn't always mean that it's it's ruining <laughs> ruining your research. So, and I, I've seen that in, in some of my simulation work, but I've, I love collider bias so much that in some of my early simulation work, when the causal structures that I was imagining weren't giving rise to really substantial bias, I was disappointed which which might say something about how, how much of a collider bias believer I was that I was running <laughs> simulations and saying like what the bias isn't terrible and so that was one reason why running simulations is really useful for me because even though I, I love collider bias I recognize that even if I might see it in a lot of papers or see it as a potential source of bias I can kind of step back and think how large a magnitude might we imagine that this source of bias is is it the biggest problem that, that the study has? Do we think that it could qualitatively be leading to, to different study conclusions? So I, I had this exact same experience that you did, which is that <laughs> I didn't find out about this until my third level Epi Methods class. And I, I was mad that no one had told me this before. It was like finding out that the tooth fairy didn't exist. It was, Wait, you know, what? So, oh, sorry. There are children listening, Matt. <laughs> That's true. We do, we do have a very young epidemiologist audience. Apparently, I don't know why I did this, but I wrote in the notes here, I wrote, which came first, collider stratification bias or DAGs? Apparently, I thought that was amusing when I wrote it. But I think what I meant was, you know, it seems to me it was roughly the 2000-ish paper by Pearl and Greenland and Robbins that really kind of first brought this idea into epidemiology. I mean, what was going on before that? Did we Were we just constantly doing this and we didn't know about it? Or did people just, they knew about it, but they didn't think about it in terms of causal diagrams? That, that's a good question. You don't have to know the answer to that. I just... I would assume that certain people knew about it. Like, Sander probably knew about it for a while, for example. But mm -hmm. I think it took causal diagrams to bring it to the masses of epidemiologists. So so I think in terms of which came first, collider stratification bias or DAGs, I think collider stratification bias certainly existed before DAGs. But for most epidemiologists, understanding of collider stratification bias comes after understanding DAGs. Because I think collider stratification bias is one of the strongest cases for where DAGs are really useful for 
for mm -hmm. mapping out biases. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned before, I think a lot of people can intuitively understand the, the basic concept, at least, of confounding without a DAG, and DAGs can be really helpful for still for mapping out confounding. You can understand the basic concept without drawing a DAG, but understanding the concept of collider stratification bias without a DAG, I think, is, is pretty challenging. So as we're talking on this podcast about collider stratification bias without being able to draw a DAG, you might notice when I was explaining what it was, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm describing it in a way where I'm imagining the reader is then picturing a DAG, at least so, or the reader, the listener. So this argument that people have used that collider bias, the magnitude is often overstated, let's say, or, or, you know, we don't need to worry about it as much because the magnitude is typically small. So you've done a lot of simulation work. And so I wanted to ask, what are the circumstances that lead this to be a bias that strongly affects our results? Yeah, so first of all, most of the time when I'm thinking about collider stratification bias, my collider is a variable that we're selecting on. So selecting on survival to old age, selection into our sample, and the example that you gave for clinic-based study. So selecting on having a heart attack and surviving to make it to the hospital. And so rather than just conditioning or adjusting by adjusting for, for a potential collider. So I'm much more familiar with thinking about the quantification of bias when you're actually selecting on the portion of the people with the collider. So I my sense is from, from reading other people's simulation work that the magnitude of bias is going to be larger if you're only studying people with one value of the of the collider versus adjusting for the collider in your regression, regression model. But I think that some of the main drivers of the magnitude of bias in that scenario could be how common that collider is. So in, in my examples, it's often, so thinking about cumulative incidence of, of mortality, if we're conditioning on, on survival, that, that's going to be a big deal. So if you only have 20% of, of a birth cohort survive to, to the age at which they could be enrolled in your study, the magnitude of collider bias is going to be much larger than if you have 80% of the original birth cohort. And then another important factor is thinking about if we have a, a collider bias DAG where instead of the outcome directly influencing the collider, you have a common cause of or a determinant of the outcome that also influences the collider, that if the exposure and that determinant of the outcome interact to influence the collider, the magnitude of bias is, is really sensitive to that relationship. And so I actually wonder, at least in the way that I teach this concept, I focus first on the kind of collider bias that gets created analytically, mm -hmm. not the kind of collider stratification bias that created by selection. And I wonder if that's if you think that's a mistake in that it is certainly plausible that there are cases where adjustment based collider stratification bias is going to lead to substantial bias. But in a lot of cases, it, it really won't. Whereas the selection bias type scenario or the selection based collider stratification bias seems to me like that's much more likely to cause a big problem. Well, I think my first introduction to, to collider stratification bias is, as, as you mentioned, thinking about adjusting for collider in your regression model. I think it's a nice place to start because collider bias comes before DAGs, but understanding of collider bias comes after DAGs. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that starting with teaching students, draw a DAG, think about the causal structure, use that to help you identify what covariates you want to adjust for and why. I think that that's a nice introduction to collider stratification bias. And then maybe you don't want to, to scare students into thinking that it's it's going to be terrible if they adjust for, for a collider by mistake, but mm -hmm. it still seems like something that's worth teaching students, you know, think about think about what covariates you want to adjust for and why. If you see that this, you draw out your DAG and this covariate is conceptualized as a collider instead of a confounder, don't adjust for it. 
So this idea about interaction between the common cause and the exposure is something I had never learned about until I actually worked on a paper with you about it. And it was published a few years back in epidemiology, and it was about racial inequalities and stroke incidents. And so this idea that the interaction between your exposure and your common cause increases the potential magnitude of the bias, I think is, is under-recognized in epidemiology. And so can you talk about that idea uh, in how, in your study, what you found in terms of how it affected the magnitude? And, and before you do, actually, can you just explain it one more time? Because I don't have the picture really in my head of what you're describing. Yeah, yeah. So starting up with the description. So if we're imagining a collider by a stag where the exposure influences the collider and there is a determinant of the outcome that also influences the collider. Mm-hmm. Let's say our data generating model is a, is a mul- multiplicative model. If the exposure and that determinant of the outcome have more than multiplicative effects on the collider, then your bias is going to be larger than if they were perfectly multiplicative. And so the, the way that I came to thinking about this was actually, I think it's in the appendix of Miguel Hernan's 2004 structural approach to selection bias paper, but it's also repeated now in the new textbook by Miguel Hernan and Jamie Robbins that talks about how you can actually have a collider bias DAG where there's no bias. And so I think that that situation, and hopefully I'm going to be able to state it perfectly here and not confuse anyone, but if you want to look it up, it's in the appendix of the 2004 structural approach to selection bias paper by Miguel Hernan. And so in this scenario where you can have a collider bias DAG without any collider bias, I think is if there's a multiplicative survival model such that the exposure and that determinant of the outcome have perfectly multiplicative effects on survival and then you're conditioning on survival. But in most of the time, actually when I'm simulating, I'm modeling mortality instead of modeling survival. And so even if I'm saying that the effects of the exposure and that determinant of the outcome are perfectly multiplicative on, for example, the hazard ratio scale for determining the collider, there would still be a little bit of interaction on the cumulative survival scale. And so even though I am making the effects of the exposure and the determinant of the outcome perfectly multiplicative on, for example, the hazard ratio scale for the collider, there would still be a little bit of interaction on the cumulative survival scale. And so so I have a little bit of bias. And then, but if I really explicitly make a data generating model where I'm purposely inserting an interaction between the exposure and the determinant of the outcome on the collider, then, then the magnitude of bias is larger. And I think one of the ways that it's helpful, I found it helpful to understand why. So I think that often you read something, you convince yourself that the authors are telling you the truth and you might not understand why. And then I simulated it and said, okay, I can see that if I if I make the, the effects of the exposure and the determinant of the outcome on the collider more than multiplicative, the bias is larger so then I can convince myself, okay, like I did it, I see it there. But then trying to really understand the why, the reason why that happens, I found it useful in my simulation work to then look at the distribution of the, how the distribution of that determinant of the outcome changes based on that causal structure. So if we have an interaction between the exposure and the determinant of the outcome on the collider, then as the, the sample becomes more and more selected, the distribution of that determinant of the outcome becomes more and more different in the exposed and the unexposed. So that drives a larger magnitude of bias. That's a very clear explanation, I think, because it's a topic I have read that appendix as well because I share your love of that paper. And I've read it and 
okay, yeah, I'm sure if Miguel Hernan's saying it, it has to be true. But I, I really didn't understand it until you, you play around with simulations because it's so hard for my brain to wrap around these concepts without seeing some kind of quantitative example. You know, oh, that's how much bias is created compared to a different scenario where a different amount of bias is created. So I think this whole podcast also is advocating not only for collider stratification bias as an important bias, but the value of simulations in trying to understand forms of bias more. Yeah, I really love simulations. So in addition to loving collider bias, I love simulations. And I think that the first time somebody suggested I do a simulation study, I thought, oh, that sounds really fancy and really hard. <laughs> I hope I can do it. But actually, one of my goals as, as an educator is trying to make simulations accessible. It's like, no, you don't have to be super fancy to run a simulation. And in fact, simulations, really simple simulations can be a really useful tool for convincing yourself that something is true when somebody has taught something to you, you know, mm -hmm. and actually really learning the concept. And I mean, more broadly, simulations have made me think a lot more carefully about empirical data that I analyze because I, it reminds me that there's always some data generating model out there. I'm trying to model it. I'm modeling it in an imperfect way. And so it's, it's just helpful for me to, to think about real data that I work with by simulating as well. So I get as excited about what you just said there about simple simulations as Haley does when you start talking about collider stratification bias. I firmly believe that we underutilize simulation as a means of teaching. And I also firmly believe that showing students just doing a basic simulation to try to understand the concept is not all that difficult and it gets them over that hump very quickly. And it's some, so it's something that I, I teach a half semester course on for exactly that reason. But I do wonder if you have the same experience that some of my students have and sometimes I have, which is observational data analysis is hard. And it was hard before we knew about this whole collider stratification bias problem. Now it just got even harder in these simulations that we're doing are typically very oversimplified scenarios. It probably gets even more complicated than that. And there's probably measurement error that factors in. And, and do you ever have moments where the more you know, the less confidence you have that you're ever going to be able to get the answer to the question that you want? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that, you know, one thing that I try to keep in mind when I simulate is I'm usually trying to focus on quantifying one form of bias. So we're going to say, well, in this simulation, we're going to assume if we're going to focus on collider stratification bias, we're going to assume no confounding, no measurement error, because we really want to focus on the magnitude of one form of bias. I think maybe if you do a really clean job of simulating and quantifying collider bias, and then separately assuming you have, let's say, no confounding and no collider bias, you can simulate measurement error, and you, you simulate each of those separately, then you can think about layering them on later. But I think one of the things I find so humbling about simulations is even more than a DAG, it really forces you to be really explicit about the data generating model that you have in your head. So sometimes if I'm if I'm doing a simulation for collider bias, somebody might bring up, what about the characteristics of your people? So you have people who are exposed and unexposed and you have a, a determinant of your outcome that's influencing your collider, but what about these other characteristics? Like why don't your people have a sex or a gender, for example? And then it's, it's helpful to think about well, why that characteristic might be relevant to quantify 
identifying this form of bias. And so you have to really carefully think about when I'm considering the suggestion, what is the, what's the actual operationalization of this suggestion and, and why might it be relevant to our simulation? But it's really humbling to think about how complicated the world is and how poorly we understand it when you actually try to sit down and simulate a useful simplification of the real world. It's so hard. Mm -hmm. It's challenging. And obviously you want those simplifications for trying to understand components. But when you put it all together, I think we've bitten off a, a big task for ourselves. I don't mean to be overly pessimistic because I do think that, you know, we have, can point to some great examples of cases where we've been able to use observational data to get at causal effects. But it's just a warning that it's hard. Yeah, I think it's, it's a reminder that when we're modeling observational data, we're making assumptions that we can't verify and that the world is probably much more complicated than we can imagine. So simulations are nice nice reminder of that and that we're probably making assumptions we don't even realize we're making oh yeah yes yeah. i'm going to ask a two-part question now so the first quote simpler part of the question is on a scale of one to ten with one being really easy and ten being absolutely impossible how easy would you say it is to fix the problem of collider bias in a real observational data set that is a hard question. I think it depends on the, the source of collider stratification bias. So I guess in the, the case where we think the collider stratification bias isn't so bad, maybe when you're adjusting for a collider in your regression model, then it's easy. You just don't adjust for it. But I think in many cases in the forms of collider stratification bias where we're selecting on the collider, it's much more difficult. So on a scale of one to 10, I don't know. I tend to underutilize the, the far ends of distributions of scales uh, for, for ratings, but I, I would say maybe eight or above, but take into consideration that I very rarely use the, the far ends of a scale for, for rating things. But I guess the other thing to consider is that I love collider bias, so I might be overestimating its difficulty and importance as well. So it could be a, a six and it could be an 11. Yeah. yeah, it's a scale of one to 10. It doesn't go above 10. We might need to simulate but, to think about actually the potential positive and negative biases that are influencing my, <laughs> my rating. But Haley, this one goes to 11. No, no, it's not allowed. I make the rules. It's our podcast. <laughs> I think that it's difficult in part because we often don't understand what the structure of the selection bias is, right? So if we're imagining we have collider bias rising from selection, in order to, to ameliorate it, we have to be able to, to model the selection process. And I am not really confident that we have a good enough understanding of the world often to model the selection process well. And so let's say, depending on the S-man that you're interested in, you want to use inverse probability of selection weights to try to to ameliorate for collider stratification bias. And often I see people apply the weight, say that the answer isn't really different than their naive model, and then say, well, obviously I didn't have a lot of selection bias then, which might be true. It might be that you didn't have a lot of wider bias, but it could also be that the selection process was modeled poorly. And so you didn't actually really correct for it. And so I think it's, it's hard to know. So I guess that means that I think it's, it's difficult to model or difficult to remediate collider bias. That brings up a point that we've talked about previously where Matt or Ellie were unclear on where it came from, but has said that inverse probability of censoring or selection weights don't often make a difference in many situations. And so I guess a good response to that is yes, potentially they don't make a difference or you're wrong in how you model them, right? 
Yeah, and you don't know which reason. And I think the one other concept I want to touch on in terms of what makes it difficult to remediate glider stratification bias is you really have to be clear about what your estimate is to think about what the appropriate tool to remediate glider stratification bias is. And I wish I could say, well, I've been working on this for a few years and I now have this really clear formula for saying, tell me what your estimate is, then follow method Y, and it will yield an unbiased effect of your estimate under assumptions A, B, and C. I don't have that nice roadmap for people. Maybe in a few more years, I can help provide that. But I think that part of the challenge is often, especially I guess in the context of collider stratification bias arising from selection on survival, researchers won't necessarily agree on, on what's a reasonable estimate. And we might be sort of challenged by thinking about what estimates are of interest and what estimates can we actually estimate and trying to link those together. So I was once at a conference and I heard a researcher ask, this question. I have selected on survival up to age 90. So everyone in my analysis had to be 90 or older. And therefore, my results aren't going to be biased if I only care about the target population of individuals older than age 90. What would you answer in response to that type of question? Yeah, so I think that this is one of those situations where I think many collider bias lovers have posed this question before. <laughs> I think you give a really simple collider bias example to explain how conditioning on survival to old age in this example can give rise to non-causal associations between the exposure and the outcome. And so my favorite simple example is a NBA example from Maria Gleemore. It's published in Methods for Social Epidemiology textbook. If you've been trained in DAGs, you can draw the DAG to think about it, but I think it's useful to get people to stop and think even if they haven't been taught DAGs yet. So you can get them to stop and think long enough that then you can try to teach them DAGs maybe. The NBA example is that some tall people are fast, some are slow, some short people are fast, some short people are slow. In the general population, knowing that a person is short does not give you any information about their speed. But to make it to the NBA, players must be either very tall or very fast. So if you know that an NBA player is short, like Muggsy Bogues, what do you know about his speed? And so I think it's helpful to think about like this little story thinking about, oh, so I, if you condition on being in the, uh, in the NBA, we're inducing an association between speed and height. And so when we condition on survival to old age, we might also be inducing spurious associations between variables that are not generalizable or not internally valid, I guess I should say. I think that all examples in epidemiology should be required to use Muggsy Bogues, or I would have accepted Spud Webb as another option there. Just to point out one fact, Muggsy Bogues was on the Toronto Raptors, and the Toronto Raptors defeated the Golden State Warriors, which is Elizabeth Rose's favorite team, last year in the NBA Finals. Just, to, just yes. two points that I would like to casually mention at this juncture in the podcast. And for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, we are largely referencing basketball players from the 1980s and 90s. Yeah, well, the, the Raptors were mid-90s, were created in the mid-90s, so let's say late 90s, perhaps. No, 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 but Muggsy Bogues and Spud Webb were both oh, yeah. 80s and 90s. Yeah, 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 that's fair. Okay, so 
I think that's a great example to end off with because it really clearly demonstrates how you can induce a spurious correlation in your results and you do what you would consider to be a regular analysis and you get a result that you're super excited about because it you know has a let's say a small confidence interval and you're really excited by that and yet it could be completely spurious if you have conditioned in some way on a collider that is inducing this spurious correlation and that over Overall, I think as an under-recognized point in our field in general, that, that just because you get a result out of your statistical software, it doesn't necessarily mean that that is a causal effect. It doesn't even mean that it's a real effect. It could just be completely an artifact of the way in which your data were selected. So thank you for helping to clarify that for our listeners today. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. So just before I wrap up, I'd just like to say for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting. It also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our next episode next month. Thank you.